PHI, also known as personal health information, is one of the most sensitive types of information about someone. This includes an individual's clinical history, genomic information, lifestyle choices, and social determinants of health. Essentially, their entire life story. With the rise of cutting-edge technology and the high degree of integration into healthcare, the ability to collect PHI on individuals is becoming easier and easier, and third-party companies are in on it too. But as we get more tech-savvy, we're blurring the lines between privacy and security, leading us to ask the question of how much data is too much, and what are the risks of collecting this much data? Hi, I'm Shaveen. I'm Yubin. I'm Isabel. And this is State of the Pod at Cornell, a podcast where science meets society. The healthcare industry has evolved immensely over the past few years, and much of that change has been driven by technology. From digital and clinical support systems to magnetic resonance imaging scanners to radiotherapy, future technological innovations are going to keep transforming healthcare. Specifically, wearable technology has weaved itself into society, so much so that Fitbits and smartwatches are seen as mainstream now, and the future of wearable devices shows no signs of slowing down. Piloted by the increasing demand of consumers to monitor their own health and to keep track of their own vital signs, the use of wearable technology has more than tripled in the last four years. However, there are concerns with the health data that these devices collect and what companies do with this data. And that's exactly what this podcast will focus on. Wearable health technology, the types of health data that these devices collect, and data privacy issues that surround these technologies. But before moving forward, I would like to introduce our very special guest speaker, Dr. Curtis Cole, Chief Information Officer of Wild Cornell Medicine and an expert on the intersection of healthcare and technology. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today, Dr. Cole. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. We're going to start with a high-level overview of the big examples of healthcare and technology that you see and then narrow our scope into wearable devices. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role as CIO at Wild Cornell Medicine and a little bit about your professional experience in the intersection of healthcare and technology. Well, um, I am trained as an internist. Um, I actually went to medical school here at Cornell. Um, and then uh, following that, I, I trained in medical informatics and I was involved in the implementation of the first electronic medical record uh, at uh, what was then called New York Hospital and then came to Cornell and installed the EHR here. Um, and uh, more recently, I have taken on uh, the, the whole uh, IT department as CIO. So it's all three missions, education, clinical care, and research, as well as all of the administrative systems for all three uh, missions. Um, and then the core IT systems, uh, the network, uh, the email, the help desk, all of that stuff is all within my scope. Um, I do uh, continue to practice medicine. I am involved in research and I do also work a lot in education. I have an appointment over at Cornell Tech where I do a lot of mentoring um, for the students who are developing young technology companies, particularly in the healthcare space. That's an incredible background, Dr. Cole. We're really excited to hear what you have to say about these personal health devices. So let's get started with a high level overview. What are the biggest examples of tech that you see in the healthcare field right now? Well, you know, big technology companies have been involved in healthcare for a very long time. Um, the biggest engineering firms in the world, companies like General Electric and Siemens and Philips, some of their biggest business lines are actually in healthcare. Um, so you see them as, a, you, you notice them when you walk into the hospital or when you're a patient because they're the ones who build the MRI scanners, the CT scanners, the heart monitors, um, all of that kind of technology. Um, more recently, we have seen the software uh, taking dominance inside of hospitals. So those are the electronic uh, medical record systems like Epic and Cerner are the big names. Um, but then there's 
dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of others that are involved uh, as well. Um, and actually some of the biggest ones, of course, are on the financial side. Um, uh, in fact, the first use of computers in healthcare at scale was really about um, billing, um, and that remains one of the biggest use cases today. And it actually remains very important for anyone who's interested in clinical systems as well, or research systems, because uh, you have to often integrate with those systems in order to make the workflows work. Um, and of course, if you want to be a successful business, you have to be cognizant of how you're going to make money. <laughs> um, and um, therefore, you have to be cognizant of how your customers are going to make money. So hospitals and doctors, uh, you know, uh, uh, although we may be mission driven, um, as they say, no money, no, no missions. So um, if you're going to build a successful technology company, you have to be cognizant of the business of medicine as well. So uh, those systems all play a big role. Um, so it's a lot around, you know, the revenue cycle, diagnostics, um, and treatment system. Right. And it's clear to see that there are a ton of tech companies in the health industry right now. But with all these companies, what makes a tech company successful in healthcare? And more importantly, why have so many failed? Well, um, the it's interesting to me how many really big companies consistently lose money in healthcare. And I think one of the reasons that they do is that many of these companies are either financially driven or they're driven purely from the engineering side of the house. Um, and uh, they don't have enough clinical leadership. Um, and I think the uh, companies that actually do the work of understanding healthcare, understanding healthcare workflows, understanding the healthcare business, those are the companies that succeed. Um, if you have a company that thinks that they're brilliant and that they know how to digitize everything and transform everything with an app or with their website or whatever their whiz-bang technology is, and they arrogantly march into healthcare, they almost always fail. Um, Google's lost a gazillion dollars. Of course, IBM just famously had to sell out um, the Watson program, which was the right idea. You know, their vision was correct, but they completely oversold it. Um, because they didn't actually understand the healthcare processes that they were trying to automate. Um, so, uh, and that that story just you go back decade by decade, and you can find the you know the hulks of big companies that have lost money because they just didn't bother to do the work to figure out how healthcare actually works. Now we want to pivot to talking about specific wearables. First, before we do that, it's important to define what quantified self is. This is the process of garnering data specific to oneself in regard to health and well-being by using wearable devices and other technology. Some of the well-known quantified self-specific devices would be the Apple Watch and Fitbit Watch. These technologies have sensors that track movement, blood oxygen sensors, electrical heart sensors, and optical sensors. Applications of these tech include basic fitness tracking, blood oxygen level tracking, ECGs, step count, and sleep patterns. And this is also important for basic fitness tracking, stress management, skin temperature, sleep, and it's FDA cleared to be an ECG and electrodermal activity. Reliability and accuracy of these devices is essential for the service they are required for. That being said, we were wondering exactly how do these wearables collect health data on us? So um, uh, a lot of these devices uh, are gathering a lot of data um, and um, the data may be reliable. Um, in other words, if you measure 
whatever it is you're trying to measure today, and then you measure it tomorrow, you'll get the same answer, okay? But they're not necessarily valid, okay? So a good example of that is my Apple Watch, which I'm wearing right now. And according to my Apple Watch, I have a pulse, uh, a pulse ox or an oxygen, oxygen saturation in my blood of 93%. Um, my actual blood oxygen saturation is 98 or 99. How do I know that? Because I have a medical grade device sitting next to me that is also measuring my pulse ox. Okay, so um, these devices are not accurate. Um, so now an even more fundamental point though, is, is the data that they are measuring meaningful, okay? And um, remember that these companies, Apple, for example, is a lifestyle company. They are not a healthcare company, they're a lifestyle company. And, um, and when you start talking about things like quantified self and wellness, you're not in the healthcare space, you're in the lifestyle space, okay? So are these companies gonna make a lot of money and might they be successful? at making a certain group of people feel that their wellness is better? Probably, okay. Um, can they define wellness? Probably not, okay. Um, that's not a rigorous concept. That's not a medical concept. Um, and when you get into the medical space, you actually need a lot more rigor to your ideas than in the wellness space. So a concrete example of that would be, um, the employment programs that promote wellness for their employees, okay? A lot of companies have wellness programs that, that give you a discount if you go to the gym or um, uh, if you join a uh, weight loss program or a, a quit smoking program. And if you look at the data on those programs, um, they, they will cite, oh, you know, that 40% of our participants, you know, lost weight or blah, 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 blah. Okay. And they're not controlled experiments. What they are is they're all examples of selection bias. So they found the people in your employee base who were already motivated to lose weight and were already going to go to the gym who took advantage of a discount and participated in a program. But if you did a randomized controlled trial, which is what we do in medicine, you'd find lo and behold, the programs don't do anything. And that's the kind of thing that scares off companies like Apple and Google is doing rigorous randomized controlled experiments. And if you look at where they have done them, they're in very, very limited areas. So what does the Apple Watch do it, in, in you know, terms of monitoring your heart? It detects whether or not you might maybe have atrial fibrillation. That's it. It's the only thing it does. Okay. Um, so that's not particularly exciting. Okay. Um, they've sold millions and millions of those devices, and I'm sure that they can point to six lives that they've saved. Um, that doesn't particularly excite me. Now, does that mean that someday we might not get to a point of uh, where wearable devices can actually, you know, do meaningful things? I absolutely believe we are headed in that direction. But the vast majority of what's coming out today are either just sort of kind of interesting, perhaps fun um, lifestyle devices that for the right group of people might help them do something that they already were ready to do, or they're Theranos, <laughs> okay? They're hype, they're junk science, um, they don't actually do what they claim to do. We are getting there, okay? So um, there are devices now, for example, that are beginning to be able to monitor blood sugar 
um, in, in a, a slightly less invasive way than we are accustomed to. Oxygen saturation is an example. I mean, when I was a resident, uh, pulse oximetry was brand new. It was very difficult and expensive. Now you can buy a reliable uh, pulse oximeter for 35 bucks. We haven't figured out how to normalize it by race um, and or, or skin color more accurately. Um, and um, so it's got all sorts of problems before you can really use it clinically. But that's an example of a device that's getting ubiquitous and can be useful at scale. But we've got to pace ourselves here and figure out what realistically you can and cannot do. Let me just make one other point, which is just keep in mind that these devices are generating an enormous amount of mind-numbingly boring data. And so if you are interested in this field and uh, you want to build a career for yourself, you should think about who's going to process that data. Because I guarantee you it isn't going to be your doctor. Your doctor doesn't want to know how many steps you took today, the day before that, and the day before that. In fact, they don't even want to know your blood sugars, right? They want to know how you were doing as a trend. They want to know, you know what's causing outliers, but they want it pre-processed and digested. That's a great role for a computer. Um, if you can figure out how to get the computer to understand what is signal, what is noise, what is biased, what is not, um, and where there is some true clinical signal that's worthy of escalating to a physician. That's a worthwhile technology investment. Kind of going along with what you're talking about with reliability and accuracy, especially in wellness versus healthcare, um, how reliable and accurate do you think these wearable devices could become just because you were also talking about how much data there is that, you know, would have to be chopped up by computers and just how useful would that even be in a wellness versus healthcare setting? So what, to what extent are these uh, wearable devices going to become? I have very high hopes uh, for where we will end up with this technology ultimately. Um, but we just have to be very careful about um, what we are doing and what the specific use case is and the specific context. Okay, so um, think about a drug for a minute. Okay, so um, if you have a drug that is, say, 50% effective, um, that might be fabulous. Like that's that 50% may not sound great to a non-physician, okay? But in the world of clinical care, if you can give somebody a drug for, you know, depending on the context, if it works 50% of the time, that might be great, particularly if you have nothing else, okay? Um, so you don't have to have, you know, perfection in order for something to be clinically useful, okay? But you do have to understand the context in which you are going to use the device and what your expectations are. So something that works 99% of the time in a clinical research study where a nurse is calling the patient every single day to make sure that they're wearing the device correctly and that the battery hasn't run out and that they aren't outside of the cell range and all of those things that make a controlled experiment work, that's not the real world, okay? That may prove efficacy for the device, but then you have to determine how's it gonna work in reality with patients who, you know, I don't wear my, I, maybe I don't wear my watch tight enough for it to measure whatever it is that you want me to measure. Um, maybe I'm gonna have an allergic reaction to the, you know, the nickel that's in the buckle and then what am I gonna do? Um, those things are going to affect the real world performance 
So that's what goes into the distinction between you know, research and actual clinical efficacy. Um, and you really have to think those things through when you scale these things up to a whole population. When you start at the wellness space, you don't have to worry about that, right? Because you've got a self-selected group of people who are motivated to do whatever it is you wanna do. It's a pull rather than a push is another way of looking at it. As people are more involved in their own health, whether that be tracking their progress through telehealth or through wearable technology, such as fitness trackers, there are growing factors behind the scenes. Consumers are less wary about where their data goes in comparison to the height of excitement in being involved. In theory, being involved in one's own health is a good thing. However, the nitty-gritty laws behind the public eye is actually equivalently, if not more, paramount. Is there enough public knowledge of HIPAA on the consumer side? And are there enough regulations on containing healthcare data? And how should this change to be better? Um, okay, well, HIPAA is an important uh, law, um, uh, but I think it's very widely misunderstood. And it's also important to remember, it's really old. Okay, so HIPAA, I think it was 1998 was when HIPAA was passed. Um, and uh, so all the technology that we're talking about didn't exist when that law was written. Also, remember what its purpose was, okay? It, um, what's the I stand for? Insurance, <laughs> okay? Like it's a, it is a bureaucratic law that is designed to regulate healthcare providers. And the biggest limitation to the law is that it only covers healthcare providers and it exempts even healthcare providers in terms of what are called uh, uh, treatment, you know, operations, okay? So, um, and there are these giant holes in HIPAA that when you send data for a legitimate reason to a non-HIPAA provider, and most technology companies are not covered by HIPAA because they're not actually providers of care, um, they, they, a lot of the data loses its protections. And so there's a lot of things that we can't do with data at Cornell because we are providers that when that data is consumed by an insurance company or by a pharmaceutical benefits manager or you know CVS or somebody like that, they're allowed to do data, do stuff to that data that we're not allowed to do. Okay, so uh, so those privacy protections are quite relative. Okay, now when you get into the device space, then it starts to get actually quite scary because people give away incredibly personal information to companies that have every intention from the outset of monetizing that information. You know, as they say, if you're not, you know, if, you, if, if you're not the customer, if you don't, if you're not the customer, then you, you know, then you, you're the product. Okay. So, and if you're a Facebook user, you are the product. Okay. I, in my, if you enter information into your Apple phone, you are giving that to Apple so that they can monetize that data. And it gets even scarier. Okay. So what just happened this week, we saw the leak of the, from the Supreme Court of the possible Roe versus Wade being overturned. Okay. Um, there are many women who track their menstrual cycles in their phone. Okay. And they may be doing it in apps that have every intention already of selling and giving away your data. Even, you know, Apple might protect it a little bit better than a random app, but nonetheless, that data is now in your phone. Okay. And, and there are governments in the United States, there are state governments that try to criminalize miscarriage. 
there are women, particularly African-American women, are frequently targeted um, and they get put in jail for having a miscarriage, okay? Um, so do you really want your menstrual cycle tracked by a device where a government could subpoena that so that they could arrest you, right? And who would have thought of that when they bought an app saying, well, I just want to track my menstrual cycle. Right. So there's a lot of these subtleties that people absolutely do not appreciate. Now, can you escape it? <laughs> it's really hard to live in the modern world and not have a phone, right? Um, and if you're going to spend all the money on the phone, you want the, the goodies and the, and the creature comforts that it, that it does deliver. So I get it. I'm not critical of people who use these apps. Um, but um, Absolutely, there is a shortage of awareness. And I would say the biggest shortage of awareness is within our politicians, um, some of whom are actually quite aware and quite sinister in their motives, and some of whom are really just are trusting um, that these institutions, that these governments, uh, these, uh, these corporations are going to do the right thing. Um, Europe, I think, has a much more uh, sophisticated view of this than we do in the United States. Um, but um, even there, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the protections are pretty weak. Um, and then and at the end of the day, you don't want to get too precious about, it. you know, some of the stuff that these phones do with that data. It's great. It's nice. OK, you're getting goodies. Um, and, you know, so I would prefer to live in a country where you can do those things and you can rest assured that the data is not going to be used badly. Um, but if any and and. If anything, we're moving away from those protections, not towards them. Who should claim responsibility for addressing this issue? And is it an issue that pertains to the government specifically, or are there other factors involved as well? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a that that's a philosophical question. You know, the the, the libertarians um, uh, would argue that no, we should just let everybody do whatever they want. Um, uh, and, you know, that the, the somehow fires will put themselves out or something. But um, they, um, it is, you know, in, in modern countries with the complexity of our current technology and our current economy, it is certainly hard for me to imagine an entity other than government um, that's going to have significant enough power to actually properly regulate. But um, one thing that I agree with the libertarians on is, is that, you know, with that power comes great responsibility. And the problem is, is that when the government has that responsibility, if they are a responsible government, that's great. And if they are an irresponsible government, it's horrible. And if you think that can't happen in the United States, just because, you know, we've had a few decades of, um, you know, more enlightened government, I think, you know, as the message from the, the Supreme Court leak is, you know, that, that those days are over. Okay, so um, we do have to be very cautious. Um, it, you know, democracy is a very, very fragile thing. And um, if laws can be, you know, managed and maintained by an angry minority, um, then, uh, then it is interesting who is going to be the best protector. Um, you know, Apple's been looking pretty good these days relative to, you know, Facebook and Google. Um, now, will that change when they have a new CEO or when their economic incentives change? Probably. Um, so unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not giving you a particularly upbeat answer to that question, <laughs> but it's been a bad news week, so. How has technology helped physicians and patients stay in touch during the pandemic? 
Well, I think, you know, the, the, the big story with the pandemic in terms of technology, of course, was telemedicine. And, um, and it is one of the great technical successes in terms of taking care of people during COVID. But going back to an earlier point that I made about how you have to actually understand the business of medicine, it's important to remember, we've had the technology to do telemedicine since the 1960s. Okay, so the technology is not new. Okay, um, you know, Zoom is new, uh, but you know, those are just brands. You know, there's just iterations of technical concepts that have existed for decades. But prior to the pandemic, the reimbursement for, tech, for telemedicine was so much lower than the reimbursement for in-person visits that doctors could not afford to provide that care. Now we still lose money on telemedicine relative to in-person care. Um, it's actually a little bit more expensive to provide um, for, for a variety of sort of complicated reasons, mostly just having to do with the fact that it takes more physician time to do a telemedicine visit. Um, but at least the, uh, it's gotten competitive. And that's what's really changed is not the technology, it's the reimbursement. Okay, so if the law changes back so that we don't have some kind of parity uh, between um, in-office and telemedical care, doesn't matter how good the technology is, that option is going to disappear. And if you don't believe me, ask, you know, check out the people who are trying to get mental health. Okay, mental health is not paid at parity with other kinds of health. And as a result, there's a huge shortage. Um, of mental health providers, particularly psychiatrists and child psychiatrists. So that the economics um, will drive the technology as, um, as much as the technology might want to drive the economics. Yeah, this is a really great discussion, Dr. Cole. Um, just wanted to ask you now that we're wrapping up, if you had any final thoughts on sort of this intersection of healthcare and technology, or if there's anything we already didn't, didn't address it through our questions. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that you um, uh, that you are interested in this subject, um, and um, and I hope you are excited by it um, uh, as much as, as, as and even perhaps more than I am. Um, I think uh, your generation, being digital natives, you're going to think of solutions that are not possible for my generation to contemplate because your brains are already wired differently, um, just because you've grown up with technology in a different way. Um, and, uh, you know, ride that <laughs> um, and solve some of these problems that, that me and my colleagues think are impossible. Um, uh, that's, that's the exciting, fun stuff to come. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I'm really excited to see sort of what happens with this whole intersection of healthcare and technology in the next couple of decades, and especially in our generation, since like you mentioned, we've been growing up on tech ever since we were little kids. So I'm definitely excited to see sort of what new innovations and breakthroughs happen in the near future. But as we're wrapping up with the podcast, just wanted to say thank you for take, taking the time to record this with us. Your extensive professional background in sort of this intersection of healthcare and technology definitely brought in some significant insight and helped us clear up some ideas that are definitely confusing to most of us. So again, just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to record this with us. Great talking to you. Take care. Yeah, so just to end things off, um, Isabel and Yuvin, I thought we could just have a final discussion and wrap up our thoughts. So now that we heard um, our expert on Dr. Cole on healthcare technology, what do you guys think about this whole intersection now and sort of where do you guys think this is going to go in our, in our lifetime? Well, for me, it was definitely interesting to hear about him talking about how 
this technology can apply, be applied differently in either a healthcare setting or in the wellness setting and how that'll change what exactly accuracy and reliability looks like with these devices. And even though there's a long way to go, it's exciting. And he put the responsibility on us to continue to move forward with this technology. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think it's kind of terrifying, honestly. And if I think about it too much, it starts creeping me out because I feel like companies have so much data about me. And especially with documentaries about like how toxic social media can be and how we're addicted to our devices, it's definitely something that kind of irks me the wrong way sometimes. But also, as Dr. Cole said, though, I am really interested to see what happens and and what the future has in terms of trying to contain or mitigate this issue. Yeah, I'm right there with you with this whole intersection of healthcare and technology being equally as terrifying the more I think about it. And I feel like we're just, you know, talking about the tip of the iceberg here, especially with the rise of, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, it's going to be pretty scary to see how far we push these technological advancements in healthcare and just see, you know, what happens down the road. But it was also interesting for Dr. Cole to talk about, you know, HIPAA and how pretty much how ineffective that is in in terms of, you know, what people think as data privacy and data security. Um, it was interesting how he talked about, you know, HIPAA was mainly written with an insurance um, mindset and how it was written, you know, decades ago. And obviously is not sort of keeping up to date with the technological advancements that are happening now and, you know, what's going to happen down the road. So that was definitely pretty insightful and something that, you know, a lot of people think sort of protects them. But um, as you mentioned, you know, we're kind of signing away our right for this uh, data when we're, you know, giving it to companies like Apple, Fitbit, especially on our on our iPhones and other personal wearable devices. So I thought that was definitely significant, something I learned from this podcast as well. So I just want to say thank you to your producers, um, Isabel Yuban Shavin and our executive producer, Adele. And a special thank you to the Milstein program and the investigative biology unit for the recording equipment and the software to use software used to create this podcast. And again, this was Data the Pod at Cornell, a podcast for science meets society.